0: Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you're listening. This is Dan Turchin, host of AI and the Future of Work, here with another fascinating discussion. Just to tee up today's discussion, as you know, every week practically our conversations about the future of work devolve into discussions about the future of education. We had a great discussion recently with Tess Posner, the CEO of AI for All about creating AI curricula for high schools. And then bit before that, we talked to the great Charlene Lee about what skills will be required to be a leader in the 2030 workplace. We talked to Patty Hatter very recently from Palo Alto Networks about how to inspire a lifelong love of technology in females and underrepresented minorities. Now, interestingly, what we haven't discussed is the underlying educational system and whether or not it needs to be fundamentally restructured. For example, what happens when resetting passwords is automated but empathizing with angry customers isn't? What happens when trucks drive themselves but humans still need to review the algorithms that determine where they go? Does the traditional education system work when let's say a completely new set of skills is required? And more importantly, are we prepared to teach those skills today? Today's guest is rising to the challenge. Darius Goldman started Meritas to address the epidemic of student debt and help make education more accessible to more students. Before we can reinvent work, we need to first reimagine what it means to work, what it means to create value and what skills will be required to be successful in the future. We should all be rooting for Darius and for Meritas to succeed. I'm really excited to have him on the show and to have him share his story with you. Without further ado, Darius, welcome to the podcast. Why don't you uh, start by describing your background and what inspired you to launch Meritas?
1: I've always been fond of the idea of the democratization of education. My mother, she came to this country when she was 16. She was a Persian immigrant. She came from Iran she didn't speak a lick of english it's through education she elevated herself she ultimately became a licensed social worker became tenured which means they can't fire you in our local school district and i saw firsthand the power for education to transform lives from candidly non-english speaking immigrant into a respected pillar of a community that, that's my upbringing. When I was 18, my father, who's a psychiatrist, um, said to me, I don't have business to give you, so I'll give you an education. What you do with that is on your own. I didn't realize the impact of those words back then, but like many other kids who don't necessarily know what they want to do, I went to law school. Um, what I like about law is it's a backstage pass. If you want to do something, first learn the legal mechanisms behind it. After law school, I like to say now I'm a retired lawyer, but after law school, I joined big law, became a corporate attorney. It was through that experience that I structured and understood the legal um, structuring behind income share agreements. And then in 2018, when I was ready to step away from practicing and wanting to do, I looked at the skill sets that I've achieved and decided that the best way I could fulfill my passion, pay it forward, and also have fun was to work in ISAs amongst the different esoteric asset classes I had legal familiarity familiarity in, I wanted to work in ISAs. So I created a direct-to-consumer ISA funding company, which funded, surprise, surprise, lawyers in their last year of law school, looking for bridge financing before they became, uh, but went to the workforce. That's how I got into it.
0: So to those uninitiated, describe what an ISA is. Sure. so Income sharing agreement, but go into a little detail of why they exist.
1: So ISA stands for income sharing agreement. And I like to say it's a deferred tuition agreement with an ISA. The school, allows the student to take the courses on credit you don't say for free because they will pay after the fact but on credit and that's important because that right there solves one of the biggest hurdles to education how will i finance this how will i afford this i'm an immigrant i'm a first generation american i don't have a cosigner i don't have a credit score with an i say that becomes irrelevant because the school lets you in on your future potential they train you, they educate you. And then the deal is, once you graduate, once you're earning above a minimum income threshold, I call it the floor. Once you're earning above the floor, you pay back the school, you pay for that education, but you pay it in a way that's correlated to your earnings. So you make a deal with the school where you say, I will pay you 10% of my earnings after I graduate, only after I'm earning, up till I hit the tuition amount or that cap." the the multiplier on the tuition. There's no interest with ISAs. So there's a, what they call a cap. If it's a $15,000 cash price tuition, maybe they'll say, fine, you'll pay us two X $30,000 over eight years, assuming you have a high earning job. If you don't have a high earning job, you'll only pay commensurate with your earnings. And you may not hit that cap. The cap is basically the safety mechanism that's built into the product.
0: Does an ISA apply equally well to fields that traditionally haven't yielded high income earners? You mentioned funding, lawyers, et cetera, you know, doctors, engineers. What about everyone else?
1: It's a good question. Um, the ISA itself is agnostic. It's a financial instrument. It's a tool. It's a method to calculate your payment obligations indexed as a percentage of your earnings. In that way, they're always manageable despite what you're earning because you know, you'll be paying 10%. The fact that it applies to high earners as opposed to low earners is more because as a solo entrepreneur, I said, what markets do I understand? I understand lawyers, but even with lawyers, for example, public interest, corporate law, government, There's a wide range of earnings. So a better way to think about the say is, in a good way, it's almost like a progressive tax. The more you earn, the more you'll pay. But with that said, you're still only paying the same set percentage of your earnings. You're still paying for this example, 10% of your gross income, whether you're earning 100,000 or 500,000. You're still paying the same amount. To that end though, Um, Because of the common assumption that ISAs negatively impact high earners, the more you make, the more you pay. At Meritas, we developed what I call incremental payment caps. With the ISA, your payments stop when you hit what I call the ceiling, which is the most you'll ever pay. I still think it's unfair that some schools will say it's a 2x cap, but that doesn't matter if you pay it in one year or five years. I think if you pay it off in one year, you should be able to have a cost savings associated with that. So at Meritas, we created incremental payment caps where the schools that use our software, they could say if you pay back in the first year, it's a 1.1 cap, which would be the equivalent of a 10% loan. If you pay back in the second year, it's a 1.2 cap, a 20%, but over two years. So we've, we've made a way to adjust these caps to help level the playing field and make it fair to the students who hit success early and want to satisfy their ISA payments.
0: It seems to me like the educational institutions are biased toward the status quo collect the fees up front, leave it to the student to figure out how to pay now, and then how to finance the, the debt after they graduate. What, what will the tipping point be, at, at which point maybe the market will require educational institutions to accept? ISAs as a form of payment?
1: It's a question of accountability. And I've always believed that higher education is a luxury. And it's a luxury that some people can afford, some people can't afford, some people take out crushing government and private loans to to be able to attain that fallacy. Until the school itself is held accountable for its students' respective success, there's no motivation for them to change the status quo because under the status quo, the typical student, Jane Doe, she borrows money, whether it's from the government or from a private source and pays for that education up front every semester, pay for that semester in advance. The school gives them a piece of paper degree and then says, good luck, go get a job now. They're not motivated. With the I say, we flip that. We literally tell the school, we tell the student, come take the course, get trained, get a job, and then pay us back. Maybe in aggregate, you'll pay back more. You may or you may not pay back more with an ISA than you did with a traditional private loan, but the ISA has that downside protection built in. It has that insurance-like protection that tells the student if you're not earning or if you're earning less than you should based on your degree or certificate, you don't have to pay it back. And with that insurance product, there's usually a slight premium involved. So at the end of the day, it's a risk adjusted method that traditional loans don't provide, that schools who are paid upfront have no incentive to provide. So
0: it's good for the student and it's good for society, but arguably it's not in the best interest of your customer, the educational institution. How do you pitch an educational institution on this?
1: It's a great point because at Meritas, we're very cognizant of the fact that we have two customers. We say the partner is the school because they signed the contract, they use our platform, but the end user is our customer. We're significantly focused on that end user. We understand that the school is using us for the end user. The end user, the student, is the school's customer. So even though the school is our customer, we like to always concentrate on the fact that without the students, there's no school without the end user. There's no reason for us. So, so our derivative customer is that end user. We try and educate the schools to help them design programs that are affordable and fair that allow the school and the student to achieve success. Right. It's, it, these aren't scholarships. These are simply deferred tuition agreements that are meant to realign the risk of taking Skills training or higher education courses. You know, an analogy I use is it's a fair assumption to make that if you go to Harvard or Princeton, you'll have offers available to you. But if you go to regional schools or training schools that don't have the prestige of a national university, but are training you for a very highly specified skill set, the student is concerned saying, is it worth 15,000? Is it worth 30,000? Is it worth the time of day? Is it worth me sacrificing my other opportunities? That's where the ISA is, it's awesome. Because the I say says, don't worry, come take the course, test drive the course. And if it works, you'll pay after the fact. It's literally like test driving a car for six months and then starting your lease payments.
0: So I think what will make it real for the listeners is tell us a story. So maybe one student Kind of, you know, how they, how they learned about the ISA opportunity, how they found the educational institution, how you partnered with the educational institution, and then maybe, you know, what the outcome was for the student.
1: Sure. So, Maritas, we're just the platform. We're not a training institution. We host the software that the uh, schools use to support their ISA programs. One school in particular that comes to mind immediately, prehire.io, they're a technology sales training course they train the SDRs. What makes pre-hired so unique is that they are the, I call them boot camps when it's not an accredited university. They're the boot camp that you go to when you want to be around tech, but you yourself may not be tech savvy. They're training the salespersons for technology companies, for SaaS companies. So one member, her name is Elena. she has no college degree, and this, this is recent and we have all the data, she has no college degree, she's 21 years old, she applied to pre-hired and in their application they asked questions that we we host. She she measured her income happiness as a one out of 10. Prior to pre-hired, she had three jobs. She was a dance teacher and she was a server at two different restaurants. Now we know all three of those jobs are very COVID risky. Um, Hard to have, hard to teach dance or be a server during the pandemic. Also before pre she had no retail sales experience. Um, she didn't even have a LinkedIn account. So what pre does is they took her in on an ISA, which she herself said she couldn't afford their tuition costs. She was living paycheck to paycheck. And they train her in SaaS, workflows, sales, methodology, essentially how to manage and do the 80 outbound calls a day and then after her 12 week course, and that's the beauty of these boot camps as opposed to four year institutions, after 12 weeks, pre-hired helped place her at one of their partner companies. And, and, and this is sort of what traditional education ignores that I think is so important. I see it as a spectrum between education to placement. And in traditional university, you get your degree and now it's on you to find a job but the boot camps, the skills training, the workforce development companies, they all have established relationships with employers. They are training for jobs that they know need to be filled. And not only do they train you, but then they help place you. So Elena was placed with a SaaS company. It's a supply chain software company. She is earning $78,000 in OTE. That stands for on-target earnings. It's sales culture, so you have to make your quotas. But this is something she would have never been able to do or even trained for in a traditional four-year school.
0: I'm sorry to hear that because I was uh, already to make an offer to Elena. <laughs> it's a great story.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Uh, it m- makes it very real. Now, So you, the Meritas business model, so you charge for the platform, presumably, but then do you also charge a transaction fee once these the, the students on the ISAs graduate?
1: So I like to say we're QuickBooks for ISAs. We manage the entire program for the school. It's their discretion. It's not ours. We give them full transparency and control. We enable them to make better decisions on who they're admitting into their programs. The way we charge is we don't charge the student. We charge the school a per student per month user fee and then since we're also handling the uh payment collections we charge them a swipe fee for the payment rails that we're doing on their behalf
0: so like in the case of pre-hired uh they're obviously providing the content they want to offer an isa so they would come to meritas and onboard your platform
1: correct we do the origination, we do the applications, we have the legal contracts that were vetted by not only ISA expert attorneys, but consumer right attorneys, because we want everything to be plain English and fair. Our contracts are written at a fourth grade reading level, not to say people need that, but because it was important to me being a former lawyer, I hate legalese. I, I, I literally, I, nothing gave me more passion than when I get to tell people I'm a retired lawyer, but our contracts are all written in plain English with simple words to try and make it as clear as day what the obligations on both parties are. But the school comes to us, we give them the origination, the applications, the contracts we do, uh, we host the student. And then when the student graduates, and this is what makes us unique, we do income verification and we do payment collections. We do payment reportings. If the student is in deferment for more than three months, which means they're not working for more than three months, obviously their payments stop, That's been for the ISA. but what makes us different from some other companies, we'll also then reach out to the student and work with them and, and figure out why they're not working. Do they want to work? If they want to work, then we'll help them try and through a form of quasi-mentorship, help them get the job that they were trained for in partnership with the school.
0: So I wanna talk a little bit about the future of education. I think you're a little biased. But uh, I but I would still like to hear uh, let's say in 20 years you know is there enough pressure on educational institutions that they feel obligated to offer an ISA as an option even though they might today feel like they can resist you know that 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 movement. what's your sense of what happens in the next 20 years?
1: So I'm an advocate, but I'm a realist and ISA is a tool in the toolbox. And an ISA will never replace subsidized government loans that are available for early termination, government workers or public interest workers or even school teachers that are that can have their government loans uh, satisfied or canceled. But an ISA is a great substitute for these private loans with high or crushing interest rates. That's where ISAs really shine. I think in the next 20 years, schools, the traditional four-year educational schools, not just the career training schools, need to align themselves with the employers and education needs to be thought of in a fluid manner from skills training to job placement. It's it's a luxury to just say, here's your liberal arts education. And there's nothing wrong with liberal arts education, but it's a luxury to just go and get educated for the sake of enrichment. In the next 20 years, the schools will need to train and then place the students with employers where there are demands for those jobs.
0: So some of the innovative new providers of primarily on online content like Coursera or Khan Academy or lots of them, including like Lambda School, have benefited from the pandemic. Talk about the enduring impact of the pandemic on education and then potentially on ISAs as well.
1: Sure, I see it as the schools that innovated during the pandemic, they recognize that education is about freedom and choice, the freedom of a student to not have to go to a brick and mortar institution. Lambda, since you raised them, is such a successful model because it's remote learning. You're you're not bound by geography. And in that same manner, students should have the ability to say, I want to train for X. What's the best course institution or program to offer me that training? And can I go there even though I live in North Dakota, Nebraska, Miami? Are you bound by physical distance? The better programs are creating remote learning opportunities that are not just Zoom videos. You can't just watch a lecture over Zoom and absorb more than a few hours worth. It needs to be interactive. And that's what we see the better schools doing. Uh, Slack has been a tremendous asset. They're creating Slack channels where students, although never seeing their fellow um, classmate, are able to have personal interactions using technology such as Slack. The future of education is, is, is to further empower the students to get the training they want, in the field they want, irrespective of their physical circumstances, proximity, jurisdiction, or even their socioeconomic status. Train people for the jobs that they want to get trained for. And then use an ISA, self-serving promotion, then use an ISA to help them afford it.
0: And before we start recording, you and I were talking about the role of AI in facilitating this, this process. And I, I would imagine that it, there's a whole lot of science behind assigning a, call it a risk score, to uh, using an ISA, ISA as a vehicle to finance a, a student. Um, how do you envision AI and, and and data being an asset to your platform?
1: Absolutely, so right now the industry is young and although we're starting, and when I say we are, I'll, I'll say the industry participants are starting to collect information. It's not being optimized yet because it's still a relatively new asset class. But we've come up with what we call the merit score at Meritas, which is a multi-factor score based on education, military experience, work experience, spending patterns, uh, traditional financial information, and then your perspective for future success based on skills-based tests for the program you want to go into. We want to be able to rank students in a way that's agnostic to credit score. So it doesn't matter if you don't have a cosign. It doesn't matter if your parents were immigrants. You're able to look at the student's future potential and then say, yes, this is a student we want in our program. This is a student worthy of an ISA because because at the end of the day, the ISA is essentially the school is saying, I'm gonna take this student on my own balance sheet. I'm not gonna collect any payments for six months or more until I've trained and placed that student into a well-paying career. So we want to use data to further refine these factors that we call the merit score to help schools make better decisions when offering ISAs to candidates.
0: Brilliant. I, we hadn't rehearsed that, but I, I'm, glad, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm so glad that a merit score exists.
1: Actually, I could use your AI to help refine it. <laughs> there
0: you go. Uh, shameless plug on on my end as well. <laughs> but yeah, uh, you know, access to education is just so it, it, it's so Byzantine in its complexity and it's so kind of you know, shrouded in in in, in mist <laughs> how it works, who gets admitted, why you know it just almost seems arbitrary. So I, what you're doing is just essential, and I'm glad you're thinking about it in terms of the data to inform the decisions that is hopefully much more accurate and fair yeah. than something like a credit
1: score, and and something like is your parent a famous actress?
0: So I I know it feels like we're get, just getting started. This may be the the, f- the first part of a multi part uh, discussion, but I, I got to get be in. Happy to <laughs> <laughs> thank you. I, I got got to get in one last question. I know we've gone way off script, but uh, but it, that's a good thing. Let's fast forward whatever it is five years, ten years, et cetera. Uh, Meritas is wildly successful. You've achieved exactly what you set out to do. At that point, what accomplishment are you most proud of?
1: I I blush because when you fast forward, right now we have 3,100 students on our platform. That's 3,100 students, like the the story I gave you earlier, who could not or would not or would have been, would have faced obstacles in getting education but for the I say. To think that in years, We did 50, 100,000 students, immigrants like my mother, who were given an education, essentially on credit, given a chance to prove themselves, to prove their future potential. (laughs) That that stops me. It stops me in my, I'm not walking, but it stops me in my tracks to think that, you know, we could have helped thousands of new American students, because we're only in America right now, Better themselves. That that's that's awesome.
0: I get chills hearing you describe it that way. Thank you. Uh it's it's a beautiful vision. And I'm gonna extend the offer to not only you to come back, but it would be great if you'd bring Elena as well or one of your one of those now 30 oh, That'd be fun. Yeah, that'd students. be fun. I, I would love to make sure those stories get told. It's just a beautiful be awesome. example of uh, you know, doing well by doing good. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Darius, this has been great. I hate, hate to wrap us up, but uh, but we're at the end of our time. Uh, thank you so much. I, I learned a lot, and uh, again, I hope I hope this becomes the first of a multi-part uh, discussion.
1: My pleasure. My pleasure. Absolutely happy to come back.
0: Good stuff, Darius. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Uh, fascinating discussion with Darius. Thanks again to Darius and, and Meritas. Uh, We are back next week with another fascinating discussion with a fascinating guest.